Jesus once told a, a story. It's called The Good Samaritan, which has, um, I guess, been a favourite ever since. It's been a favourite story for a long time. The story of the Good Samaritan is so well known that people who have no connection with church, who never would have opened a Bible, will probably know what you mean if you say so-and-so is being a Good Samaritan. It's a kind of charming human interest story. But at the same time, it carries a somewhat pointed message about how God wants us to relate to others. Someone said to me recently, all sins are the same in God's eyes. Well, I kind of had to agree with that person. I guess sin is sin is sin. To, to miss the mark, to, to fail to reach God's standard of absolute perfection is sin. But in a sense, I also had to disagree with that person because if we're going to really understand sin, we need to understand that there are different types of sins. There are sins of omissions, things that we don't do which we should do. There are things which we should do. And if we don't do those things, we're sinning. There are sins of commission, things we do which we should not do. There are sins of the flesh, sins of the spirit. There are open out there sins. And then there's secret sins. And then there's respectable sins. It was a respectable sin that Jesus graphically pointed out in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Today I want to look at both the story of the Good Samaritan and also the circumstances which led to Jesus telling this story. So what's the story behind the story? Well, if you open your Bible to the story, it's found in Luke 10, Luke 10, 25. You'll find that as Jesus' earthly ministry developed, as more and more people were hearing him speak, as more and more people were being impacted by the just amazing miracles he performed, as blind people had their their sight restored, as lame people had their legs healed, as deaf people could suddenly hear and even the dead were raised, people all over Israel were talking about Jesus and just who he might be. And as this was happening, the religious leaders were becoming increasingly hostile toward him. He was becoming way too powerful. He, He threatened their position and basically they found his teaching contradicted their interpretation of the law of Moses. They also resented Jesus because he hung out with people who they despised and hated. Jesus spent a lot of time with people who the religious leaders absolutely despised. They hated these people. Jesus accepted those whom they had rejected. And in the end, they could stand it no longer. So they plotted to bring about his downfall, either by disgracing him or killing him. And one of the ways that they tried to disgrace him was to try to get him to to trip up. They wanted to kind of throw things out to him and get him to say something that they could nail him on. They wanted to get him to say the wrong thing. And if they could just get him to say something really bad in front of a whole lot of people, well, they could probably get rid of him. Well, obviously they needed someone who was really smart. They needed someone who was with really quick 
Someone who knew the law, the scriptures inside out, and that's exactly who they sent, a lawyer. One of these experts in the law. One of these people who'd been raised understanding the scriptures. They knew all the Sunday school answers inside out. They had all the ribbons and the little badges to prove they knew what they were talking about. And that's what they did. They sent one of these experts in the law to Jesus to test him, to see if he could trip him up. And he had a question for Jesus, and it related to eternal life. Teacher, he asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Pretty innocent question, isn't it? And it wasn't the first time. I'm sure it won't be the last time that a lawyer posed a, a trick question. It seemed very innocent. Well, Jesus realised very quickly that although the question was put to him respectfully and, and thoughtfully, the man's inner motive wasn't really genuine. He didn't want spiritual answers. He just wanted to trap Jesus. He wanted to, Jesus to make some wild claim about himself, I guess. But Jesus wasn't going to fall for that. Instead, Jesus asked him a question. And he said to the man, well, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Well, I can imagine what suddenly went rushing through this guy's head. He would have been in this position so many times before and he would have suddenly gone on to autopilot. Whoa, I get to show off my knowledge. Here's my chance. Just without even realising it probably, he just slipped into show-off mode. This guy's an expert in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. This is his area of expertise and he's not going to miss an opportunity. His mind races through all the years of learning, all the scripture passages, everything that he studied and wham, out pops the answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. And he probably knew the references as well. Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. Well, Jesus heard the lawyer's reply from Scripture with approval. Excellent, Jesus said. Excellent. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And as the lawyer heard that, I guess he felt like a bit of a loser. You see, he'd asked a question which seemed to be a profound question. But now it was very apparent to Jesus and I guess the crowd that he already knew the answer. So why on earth had he asked it in the first place? Well, I suppose he felt like he'd lost the first round. So he did some quick thinking to restore his dignity. And he came up with another question as if to make out that something wasn't absolutely clear to him about the first question. And he's anxious to understand exactly who God means us to ask. So once again, he asks rather innocently, and who is my neighbour? Okay, so this guy's asked two questions of Jesus. Both of them actually show that he's pretty kind of messed up in his thinking. The first one, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the second one, who is my neighbour? Let's have a, a quick look at the first one. What shall I do to inherit eternal life. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He answered correctly. Jesus said he did. Love God. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbour as much as you love yourself. The problem for this guy, and I guess for us too, is that no one ever really succeeds in doing so. 
I mean, it's impossible to meet the requirements of God's law. That The standards are simply just, the standard is just too high. So whilst Jesus didn't deny the moral demands of the Old Testament law, he knew that it was God's moral standard that would stand for all time. He also knew that no one could meet the requirements of the law. Now I want you to focus for a moment on the words the lawyer used. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, his, his answer, his question actually, reveals a lot about his spiritual state. Do you see the contradiction in his words? See, nobody inherits anything by doing something. Do they? Inheritance is something that is earned by someone else. An inheritance is earned by someone else and then given to you. An inheritance is something you receive because you've had a relationship with that person. It's not something you achieve by some action you've done. This is really important. When this lawyer used these words, he betrayed just how confused he really was about how eternal life is received, just like so many people today, well-meaning and decent people. This man thought that eternal life was something that could be purchased by good works rather than something freely given by God. Eternal life isn't a matter of what I must do for God, but rather it is about what God has already done for me. This guy had a distorted view of himself and of God. I mean, it's so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy to think that we're okay and that we've got everything worked out. It's easy to think that we've got everything down. That it's all sorted out in our head, yet the truth is that we can have a distorted view of reality, just like this guy, who, let's face it, probably knew his Bible, our Bible, a lot better than anyone in this room. If you said to this guy, can you tell me the first couple of thousand words of the Bible? He'd go, oh, too right, mate. And then he'd start. And he would be able to recite and give talk, talk about it, the first five books of the Bible. And he would have been able to do that from when he was about 13 years of age. This guy knew the Bible that he was really distorted and mucked up in his thinking. This is why we need to continually come back to the Word of God and let it speak truth into our lives. This is why we need to let the Holy Spirit explain the Word of God to us and reveal God's Word and who God is. His second question, who is my neighbour, also reveals something about the spiritual state of this man. Who is my neighbour? In other words, to whom do I owe this kind of love? This love that is the same as I have for myself. Remember the scripture says, love your neighbour as yourself. Is my neighbour only the person who lives next door to me? I mean, surely he's got to be an Israelite. Surely he's got to be one of our people. Are you implying that some people are my neighbour and some people are not? These are the, the kind of sub-questions that are all tied up in the lawyer's question. So there you have it. That's the story behind the story. That's why Jesus told this story. So what did he say? What did Jesus say in response to the question? Who is my neighbour? 
Let's listen to the story that Jesus told this man in response to the question, who is my neighbour? In reply, in reply to the question, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the Lord replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. There's four distinct characters in the story that Jesus told as an answer to the lawyer who asked him, who is my neighbour? There's the man travelling on the road to Jericho. The victim. The victim of a vicious assault by robbers on a lonely hill, a lonely road out there in the hills. The other three characters were travelling separately. The opposite way to Jerusalem. A priest, a Levite and a Samaritan. Now, the priests were the descendants of Aaron and they served in the temple. The the Levites were the descendants of Levi and they supported the priests in their role. The priests and the Levites were considered the most holy of all the Israelites. And I want you to remember that the third category of really kind of special people was the lawyer. The guy that knew the law. He's in that group. Okay, he's in there. He's in that group as well. Now, the Samaritans, on the other hand, were a mongrel race. I want you to get this. They were half Jew and half Gentile. And that made them the lowest of the low. And what made things worse was that in the mind of the Jews, you've really got to get this, these people were the absolute equivalent of terrorists today, of a Middle Eastern terrorist. You see, it wasn't that long before. It it wasn't that long, about 20 years. About 20 years before Jesus told this story that there'd been a number of Samaritan uprisings. And in one of these uprisings, A small group of Samaritans got a whole lot of bones and threw them in the temple in Jerusalem. In the mind of Jews, when Jesus told this story, the Samaritans had deliberately desecrated their most holy site, the temple in Jerusalem, by throwing dead bones in the temple. Do you get it? 
Think about the worst image in your mind today of a terrorist. Anyone who's watched the news yesterday will know that, yes, another person, another Brit was beheaded. An aid worker, a taxi driver, who gave his time to go to Syria to help deliver aid. And he was beheaded. And think about it, okay, how do you feel? In the first century, these people, and particularly the lawyer, they're not feeling good about the Samaritans. And in fact, if you read all the other stories around about this story, Eugene Peterson calls this part of the travel dialogue, the travel stories. As Jesus and his disciples made their way down through Samaria. And in fact, it was just prior to this that Jesus sent out the 72. He sent them out in pairs out into the villages. And it's not that long, it's about this exactly this time that James and John approach a village and they didn't want to hear the message and they go back to the Jesus and they say, hey, can we get some you know, thunder and lightning from heaven and just obliterate that village? I mean, after all, they're Samaritans. Can't we just call down some holy fire? Today we would say, can't we nuke them? That's what James and John said. Can't we send the airstrikes in and blow that village to kingdom come? And Jesus just goes, no, no, we're not going to do that. And it's about this time that he tells this story. And I want you to notice who the Samaritan is. He's the Middle Eastern terrorist. He really is. You see, it's hard for us to imagine just how offensive the act was of throwing the bones into the temple. I mean, it was just horrific to the Jews. We've just got to understand this. The priest and the Levite ignore the plight of the victim. A Jew, just like them. It's one of their own people. But the Samaritan had compassion on him and did his utmost to provide help and comfort in, in probably very dangerous circumstances. Jesus didn't, give, give, didn't have to give an exploration of the story to the lawyer. You see, it spoke for itself. And although Jesus hadn't said anything disapproving to the lawyer, it's clear he felt as though he'd been rebuked when Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbour to the man who fell among robbers? And the only answer he could possibly give was the one who had mercy on him. Do you notice he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan? You see, with this story, it's like forever. Since Jesus told this story, it's like he put a line through that question, who is my neighbour? He put a line through it and he wrote above it another question. Am I a neighbour? Am I a good neighbour? That's the question. So the question is not who is my neighbour, but rather, am I a neighbour? Am I a good neighbour? 
So Jesus answers the lawyer's question about who is my neighbour by telling a story about a Samaritan, a man who had no reason whatever to provide help, yet did. And two other men, a priest and a Levite, who should have helped, but didn't. So what did the Samaritan do? Well, what was the picture that Jesus painted for us in telling this story? How then should we act? What is the, the right path for us to take as Christians? Because here Jesus is actually painting a, a picture for us of what it means to be a good neighbour. You know, I could spend some time focusing on the negative stuff that the priest and the Levite did. We, we, we could guess at what their reasons might have been and, and see if we do the same. But Jesus didn't focus on those things. He, he simply said they passed by on the other side. In other words, they did nothing. It was a sin of omission. They did nothing. And the whole point of the story is that they were in the wrong precisely because they did nothing, despite the man's great need. But you see, Jesus focused rather on what the Samaritan did, the man who acted rightly. And Jesus gives us four characteristics of right living, godly living, good neighbour kind of living from this character, the good Samaritan. The first is this. He had feet of mercy. He had feet of mercy. The, the Samaritan, the man who made the right choice, he actually had feet of mercy. See, this story is so like the world we live in. There are wounded people everywhere and it is so easy for us to walk by on the other side. Even though the priest and the Levite ignored their responsibilities, the Samaritan did not. Jesus made the point that he says he went to where the wounded man was. He didn't walk by on the other side. He, he actually went to where the wounded man was. He had feet of mercy. You know, if you think about it, Jesus did exactly the same thing for us. Jesus came to us. We're all like this guy, wounded and beaten up by sin, but Jesus left heaven to come and help us. And that's exactly what this guy did. He went to where the wounded man was. The others avoided him, but the Samaritan went to him. Now, sometimes we're going to have, to, we're going to have needy people come to us. Sometimes that will happen. But mostly... What I found is you're going to have to go to them. And ministering to wounded people is never easy and it's never really very pleasant. That's certainly been my, my experience. Now, this man in the story was pretty badly beaten up. I mean, wounds are yucky, aren't they? They are. They smell bad. Blood and pus is never nice to deal with. And it's exactly the same when you're ministering to someone with a wounded spirit or wounded emotions. Their wounds mean that when you spend time with them, they will wound you. If somebody has spent their whole life being emotionally beaten up, they actually just don't know how to be nice. Often that's the way. They have just been in defensive mode for so long that they just, they don't know how to say the right thing. They just don't know what to do. And I'll say things to you like, I'm only speaking to you because, well, you're so-and-so's friend. And I'll say stuff like that, just, it'll just come out. That's just an example for, for me from this last week. Someone who's desperately in need, they need help. But they actually don't know how to respond to the help. They may reject or abuse you. 
They may let you down or turn and attack you for offering them help. They may be afraid of you and push you away, but that is par for the course. That comes with the territory. That's part of being God's people in a world full of wounded people. I want you to do a little bit of an honesty check here. Can you remember the last time you crossed to the other side to avoid someone in need? Maybe you just pushed the knowledge of that person back into the recesses of your mind. The lady at the supermarket struggling with a, a shopping trolley and, and two little kids. The person at uni who just doesn't make friends easily because they're just awkward. The family who's struggling to put food on the table. The single mum whose car is in need of repair and with no means to fix it. And you know that if it was your car that needed that job done, if it was your car that needed four new tyres, you would just say, there's no way I'm driving out there. There's no way I'm going out without putting new tyres on that car. They're as bald as can be. But you'll happily let that other person go out there and drive, even though you know that they have no hope of buying four new tyres or getting the brakes fixed. Wounded and needy people surround us. The question is, do you have feet of mercy and are you willing to go to them? Second characteristic of the Good Samaritan was that he had eyes of understanding. He immediately saw the man's need. He didn't, re didn't require any prodding. There's no visions, no voices from heaven. When he saw the wounded man, he recognised the need and he understood what needed to be done. You see, I think our task is to look to God for guidance, to see genuine need, to have spiritual discernment, to ask the Lord to show us wounded people and their needs. And believe me in saying this, I have had lots of situations where there was, there's been someone in need and I felt like God has said, no, don't rush. That person actually has to sit in that for a time. You cannot meet every need you see. I, want to, I just want to emphasise that. You cannot meet everyone's need. You are not the saviour of the world. But that is part of listening to the Holy Spirit. There will be times where God will just say, just go and do that. I want you to do that. You know, as we become more like, more like Jesus, we develop the ability to see other people's woundedness and to recognise what we need to do to care for them. And this cannot simply mean the people living in the streets around us here in Australia. You know, our 21st century world has become a global village. We can no longer argue that we just didn't know. We didn't know what was going on. We did nothing because we didn't know. Or we, we found out months and months later, and by then it was too late to do anything about it. That is not the world we live in. We actually live in a time when we know what's going on at a level which no other human beings have ever enjoyed. All around the world. Tied to eyes of understanding is another characteristic, a heart of love. Jesus said that the Samaritan took pity on him. This guy couldn't just stand by once he'd gone to the wounded man, once he'd seen and understood his need, once he'd done these things, he couldn't stand there and do nothing. He had to act, and that's what he did. He broke through the barriers of race, he, he put his own concerns about safety behind him, and he met the man's need. I want you to remember something here. 
When this guy's been beaten up, it's probably been by a group of men who were probably still in the area. So when he stops to help, he's at risk himself. Sometimes when we do this, it's going to be risky. A heart of love meant he did what he could about the man's predicament. You know, the Apostle John writes this. He said, if anyone has material possessions, this is 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You know, as I said to you so many times before, love is just not a nice feeling. It's not. In fact, often doing love doesn't feel very nice at all. Love is action. Last characteristic of the Good Samaritan was that he had hands of caring. Hands of caring. He ministered to the victim of the mugging. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That's what Jesus said. Now, at this point, I think we need to realise that caring is costly. It took time to stop by the beaten up man and give him first aid. The, the priest and the Levite were both busy men. But they were just too busy if they couldn't spare the time to help a fellow traveller in such terrible need. You know, well-ordered, disciplined lives are good and proper. But sometimes they have to give way to a priority call if someone's in need. I find this a real challenge because I know that I'm fairly goal-orientated. I always have a, uh, a to-do list. I've really always got a schedule. And even if it's not written out, I know that this has got to get done and then this and after that there's that other thing that needs attention. And you know what? Ministry very rarely ever works like that. Ministry. And when I say that, I'm speaking the fact that we are all called to be doing ministry. I'm not in any way suggesting that this is just about the paid staff. I mean, I'm talking about all of us. Ministry opportunities, I've found, never come when it really suits us. In fact, the greatest opportunities to minister in the name of Jesus more often than not come when it doesn't suit. When it's actually going to cost us to go and care for a badly wounded person. The Samaritan gave freely of his own resources. Verse 34 says, He put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And he promised the innkeeper that he would pay the bill. You see, caring requires commitment and commitment is often challenging and costly. And maybe you're sitting here today thinking to yourself, if you're really honest, I just don't know if I can really remember the last time I noticed someone in need. I mean, people simply aren't as needy today as they were back then. Well, let me challenge you this morning. If this is you, then you need to open your eyes. You need to open your eyes and notice the hurting people all around you. I challenge you to do this. If that is you, pray God would show you someone in need tomorrow. And that you would be ready to meet that need tomorrow. Would you be willing to risk and do that? To say, Lord, show me someone in need tomorrow and give me the blessing of being able to help that person. 
I want to challenge you today to ask the Lord to give you feet of mercy, that you would be willing to go looking for people who are wounded. I'm not talking about walking the streets. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, just in life, here at church or at uni or at the shopping centre, at your workplace or in the village where you live, whatever is your context. I want to challenge you today from God's word to ask the Lord to give you eyes of understanding that you might become more aware of the needs of others and their woundedness and that you would grow a heart of love and you would develop hands of caring to meet those needs. And I want to challenge you today to become people who are willing to pay the price to be a good neighbour, whatever form that might take, whether it be financially costly for you, emotional or socially costly for you, costly in time and resources. Could I challenge us all today from God's word to pay that price? I want to leave you with Jesus' final words to the lawyer who asked him the question, who is my neighbour? Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the Lord replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it is a confronting little story from a couple of thousand years ago which speaks powerfully into our world today. Lord, I pray that you would, you would use this story to challenge us to grow up into the fullness of Christ. That we would grow up into what it means to be your people and to be like you. Because ultimately you are the great neighbour. You're the one who came to us. And the cost... The cost for you was beyond comprehension. The cost for you is that you would be changed forever, never to be the same again. For the glory set before you, you endured the suffering of the cross. And that is our ultimate example. Lord, I pray we would be people who are willing to lay our lives down as living sacrifices and to be good neighbours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.